Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. And the word of the Lord reads, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. The 18th century missionary to India, Henry Martin once wrote, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. So we are now at the final part of our series titled All In, or Life on Mission. And in this series, we have, been t- we have talked a lot about the mission of Christ and the part that we play in that mission. In fact, from the beginning, we talked about the fact that, that Jesus came into the world on a mission, and that mission was to save sinners, right? You, a sinner, were saved by Christ, by the grace of God. Jesus shed his own blood to, to redeem you. You have been saved but you've been saved for a reason. And that reason is so that you can join him on his mission to save other sinners. And your part of the mission, as we have talked about, is to go and make disciples. We are to go out into the world and share the hope of Christ with other people and then help them to get plugged into the local church so they can be taught how to grow and to go out into the world and make more disciples. And we talked about the fact that because you have been reborn, because you have been been made into something new, you are uniquely equipped for this task. You have been equipped by God himself for the mission that we have all been called to. As the word tells us, you have been remade into something new. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. God can and will use your ransomed life as an instrument in his hand to reach the world around you individually. And you are to go about this mission, as we all are, by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ with our mouth and demonstrating the love of Christ by our actions. And as we talked about, the time for us to do this is now. It's not some point in the future. The time for us to mobilize as individuals and as a church corporately is now. Now is the time to be involved in the redemptive mission of Jesus Christ. Now is the time to fulfill this mission everywhere we go. Right? And that's the scope. We're to to do this everywhere we go. We're to make disciples everywhere. Which means... We're to do this at home. We're to make disciples at work. We're to make disciples at school. We're to make disciples and meet people where they are and love them and share the hope of Christ with them at the Boron food markets. And even on Friday nights at football games, when everybody's emotions are running really high, still an opportunity for us to share the hope of Christ. You're to, to, to make disciples whenever you go to Lancaster for shopping or on vacation or on during Thanksgiving when you get all your non-believing family members together. 
This is something we're supposed to do wherever we go. The scope of the Great Commission, the scope of the mission of Christ is literally everywhere. It is the entire world, which, by the way, is what we're going to wrap this series up with by talking about today. We're going to spend some time this morning unpacking the full scope of our mission. I've been alluding to it, we've been touching on it, but today we're going to talk about the fact that our mission is the entire world, which is something that Jesus clearly communicates to us in Acts chapter 1. Now, before we dive back into the text, let me just kind of tell you where we are. There is, this is a time where Jesus has, has already died on the cross. He has already been buried he was laid in the tomb for three days and now has been fully bodily, physically resurrected. And Jesus has appeared to his apostles and many other people over a period of about 40 days. This is the historical, by the way, the historical evidence for the resurrection that Jesus appeared to hundreds of people over a period of 40 days. And so this is an important part of the story because Jesus, because the disciples of Christ are now spending up close personal time with the resurrected Jesus. They'd spent three and a half years with him before his resurrection. Now they're starting to see the big picture that he is the reigning king. Their eyes are finally open and they understand now who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, but also that he is God in the flesh. And by this point in the story, Jesus has spent more than a month with these men, teaching them and training them and preparing them for the next phase of history, which is the beginning of the New Testament church. And this particular time in history, Jesus brings them to the mountain to give them final instructions before he leaves. Because Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, and he's not going to, to be physically with them anymore. right? And, and so in this text we're reading, we finally, what we're seeing is literally Jesus' final words that he gives to his disciples while he's physically with them. The thing that we need to realize is if there are any words that are important that a person speak, oftentimes it's their final words, the final things that they have to say. Right? That's typically the words to pay attention to. It's their final words. A person's last words are usually very important, and it's the same here. What Jesus is about to say to his followers is critical for them and it's critical for us as well. And so Jesus brings them to the mountain and as they're standing there, just before he leaves, he gives his disciples one final admonition. But I want you to notice before he can say anything to them, his disciples ask him an important question. Beginning in verse six, it reads, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, you have to understand from a historical perspective, this was actually a pretty reasonable question for them to ask for a couple of reasons. Number one, they are Jews and they have an intertestamental understanding of the Messiah. And, and they still at this moment believe that the reason why Jesus came was to restore Israel as a nation to worldwide prominence once again. And, and through that Jesus would rule the entire world. They still have a limited view of Christ's kingdom and the scope of God's redemption. That's why they asked Jesus, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Because at this very moment, they're still looking for a physical kingdom on earth. They are looking for the end of the age, which by the way, 
is still what we are all looking for. We are all looking for the return of Christ. We are all looking for Jesus to come back and to set all things right. We are looking for Jesus to consummate His redemption. We're looking for Jesus to come back and restore creation back to what it was supposed to be. We are looking for a time where Jesus will physically come back and be with us and reign and rule on earth as He does in heaven. As heaven and earth come together finally. That's the glorious picture that's painted in Revelation chapter 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is the hope that all of us look forward to. This is the hope that we all long for. And, and similarly, these disciples were looking for this as well. They just had no idea of the full scope of the mission that Christ had started. They just assumed it would take place in Jerusalem and in Israel, and then somehow, magically, it would just radiate out from there. And they assumed that all of this was going to take place very, very soon, within a matter of days or weeks or months, which, which seemed reasonable at the time, because they had just experienced the most incredible act, uh, supernatural activity ever encountered by man. I mean, think about this. They had spent three and a half years watching Jesus perform incredible miracles. They watched him heal sick people. They watched him um, give sight to people who were blind to make people that were mute speak. He, he healed limbs of parts of bodies that, that didn't work anymore, that were completely ravaged. He cast out demons. He turned loaves of bread and fish into a meal that feeds 5,000 people. Jesus walked on water. Jesus rebuked the storm and they obeyed him. Jesus even raised people from the dead. And if that were not enough, they witnessed Jesus carrying his own cross to Calvary. They, they witnessed him bloody, beaten to a pulp. They watched him being nailed to the cross. They saw him suffering, crying out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they saw him, witnessed him die. And then they witnessed him having his side pierced and blood and water flowing out, proving that he was actually dead. And then they witnessed him being laid into the grave. And then three days later, they witnessed the empty tomb. And then they witnessed with their own eyes, Jesus himself resurrected from the dead, completely physically resurrected from the dead. And now they have spent 40 days with the resurrected Christ. They were witness to the most prolific supernatural activity the world had ever experienced. And so naturally they must have felt it has to be really close to the end. It had to feel like Jesus was going to come back tomorrow. It had to feel like like he was about to literally ascend to King David's throne and he was going to establish his physical kingdom here and now. That's why they would ask him, Lord, will you 
at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. Lord, is the time now for you to complete your redemptive work? Is it time for the end of the age? Now, what's interesting is that every generation from that time all the way to this time has been looking towards the heavens and asking the same question. Lord, is it now time? Is it time that we, you will come back and set all things right? Is it time now for the end of the age? Even today, even today, we ask that question. Every generation since that time has looked around at the circumstances around them and they have looked at the world around them and seen what's happening about them and asked, Is the, are the end times upon us? Is it now? If it's not now, it must be really, really soon. Look how things are going. I, I, mean, I mean, it might be tomorrow, right? It might not even, but it has to be really, really soon. Just look at the world. Look what the Bible says. It's so clear. Jesus says that he's coming back at any moment. Every generation has, has thought that. Everyone. And truth be told, at this moment, 2,000 rem years removed from Christ's ascension, we are closer than any other generation before. Obviously. And when we look at the world around us, we certainly can see that history is definitely going a certain direction. You can see that people are falling away, that people are abandoning the truth. You can see that evil is on the rise. And not only is it on the rise, but, in, but it's condoned and even celebrated. So yes, the time is near, but, but as we ask the question, as we anticipate with bated breath, standing on our tiptoes, looking to the sky, watching for Jesus, let us remember what Jesus told his disciples when they asked the same question. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So this is when people ask me this question all the time. This is a place I'm going to take them right back. Because I have people, whenever something bad happens in the world, people will stop by my office and go, hey, hey, Pastor, you think it's the end times? And I come right back here. It is not for you to know times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. And just in case you're missing the point here, let me just read it again, right? It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And the reason why I say that is because there's something, there's a morbid fascination that so many of us have that, that it, this still just keeps being the question that's being asked. In fact, there was a man just recently who had on the back of his car that the world's going to end in September 2022. And guess what? It's October 2022, right? He thought he knew, and guess what? He didn't know, right? It's not for us to know. And let me be clear about this. If it wasn't for Peter to know, if it was not for John to know, if it was not for James to know, the three closest people that Jesus, his closest friends in his earthly ministry, then it's certainly not going to be for us to know, right? It's not for me to know. It's not for you to know. Now, Right? I don't care how many Bible prophecies that a person can, can attend. I don't care how many books a person reads on the subject. And there, there are thousands of books being written on that subject. I don't care what expert says about what. And I don't care how convincing someone sounds when they talk about predicting the end. My mom, her church when she was young, was convinced the world was going to end when Neil Armstrong touched his foot on the moon because of somehow the prophecy about the, the moon be turned into blood, that if he falls down and cuts himself and blood touches the moon, then boom, it's all done, right? 
They didn't know either, right? It's not for them to know. It's not for you to know. It's not for me to know. Now, don't get me wrong. I want you to hear me, please. We are certainly to anticipate Jesus coming back. And we should expect his return. And we should look forward to that time. Because guess what? That's our hope. That's the hope when Christ comes back to set all things right. When Jesus comes back and consummates his redemptive work. And finally, all things are the way that they're supposed to be. We can finally live in a world where there is no more pain and no more sorrow and no more tears, where we live in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. By the way, who is our greatest treasure? We're to anticipate and look forward to Christ's eminent return, but we need to understand that there is, that is not to be our greatest concern. It's not. When Jesus comes back, is not our greatest concern because notice what Jesus says next. He says to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but instead, right, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, Jesus was saying, I know you're looking for me to come back, right? And I know that you're ready for me to establish my final kingdom on the earth, but that's not your concern right now. That's not what you're supposed to focus on. You're supposed to focus on the task I have already given you to do. Now, what is the task that he's given them to do? It's the Great Commission. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. That is what he told them to do, to make disciples of all the nations. But notice that these men are asking Jesus, is he going to establish his kingdom right now? Even though Jesus has already given them that global commission, right? Jesus said to them, go make disciples of all the nations, all of them, not some of them, all of them. Jesus has already made it clear that the gospel is to spread throughout the entire world. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talks to his disciples about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the age. Because, because they asked him then, when does the end come? And, and he gives them some things to look for related to the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, as well as the end of the age. And he says things that I think many of us are familiar with. Stuff that we see quoted all the time on Facebook when something happens in the world. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 6, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now, the funny thing is, is people will look at this text and they will read the newspaper, and every time a new conflict breaks out, they say, See? The end's coming. Because the Bible says you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Every time that there's an earthquake, people will, will post on social media, like, there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places, as if there have not been earthquakes and wars and famines for the last 2,000 years. They will see things from their own perspective, and they will see, see, Jesus is coming back at any moment. But the problem is, we tend to forget what he says next in the same context. And what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14, he says this, he says, and this gospel 
of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You see, Jesus makes it clear that the end of the age is not coming until the Great Commission gets fulfilled. He said the gospel will be preached throughout the world, and then the end comes. Jesus came on a mission to save sinners, a mission that every Christ follower who has ever lived has been called to. And the scope of that mission is the entire world. We are to make disciples of all the nations. Jesus said the end will not come until the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And what we need to understand is what Jesus means when he says nations here. The thing is, is we translate this from Greek to English and we miss something. He's not saying nations in the governmental sense of the word nation. He's not saying nation as defined by, by borders and a centralized government. When he, when he says nations, the word that he uses here is the word ethnos. The word ethnos, which is something you should be familiar with. It's a word that we derive our word ethnic or ethnicity from. And what Jesus, when he says ethnos, he's referring not to nations with a border. He's referring to people groups people groups who are defined by an ethnicity or language. For example, in the United States of America, there are multiple individual groups of people, groups of people with their own languages and their own culture. And it's like that all the way around the world. I once met a woman who was from China, but she made it really clear to tell me that she is not Chinese. She said, I'm Burmese, even though that Burma is part of China, she said, ethnically, I'm not Chinese. We're, I'm a completely different people group. We have a different culture and a completely different language. And, and every, within every nation, there are many different people groups. In fact, it is estimated that there are 17,000 individual people groups in the world today. Over 7 billion people are in 17,000 different people groups that are divided among these ethnic and linguistic categories. And according to current estimates, as of right now, in this moment, nearly 41% of these people groups are still unreached for the gospel today. That's over 7,000 people groups, nearly 3 billion people inside these groups that are unreached. And when I say unreached, I mean like unreached. People who have never heard the gospel, people who have never met a Christian, people who have never even seen or heard about the Bible. You see, in the United States, there are a lot of people who don't believe the gospel, but most of the people in the United States have been reached with the gospel in the sense they have heard it, that they're surrounded by it. The vast majority of Americans have, have heard the gospel. They've heard about Jesus. They have, they have met Christians. They have seen churches. They've been told about Christ. And so when I say unreached, we're talking about people groups that have never even been exposed to the gospel or Christianity at all. People who have not have, have had the gospel preached to them in any way. For example, a, a country like Yemen, Yemen has a population of 23 million people. 23 million people. But there are less than 1,000. And this is actually a very kind of, this is actually a very generous number. There are less than one thousand active Christians in the entire country of Yemen. That's less than 0.004% of the population. And to kind of give you a perspective, 
is like taking the population of California and saying that only the people in Boron are Christians. That's how it would relate, right? That's how those percentages work out. Imagine if, if only, the only Christians in California were in Boron, that's a pretty close comparison. But even more than that, right, there are more churches in Boron proper, not even including North Edwards, there are more churches in Boron proper than all of the country of Yemen. That's what I mean by unreached. People that don't even have the opportunity to hear the gospel. And as we stand right now, there are 7,000 groups of people that are still unreached to this degree. 7,000 nations that had not had the gospel proclaimed to them. Now, there are people that are actively working on that. Right? And now, does that mean that Jesus can't come back tomorrow? No. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. The fact is God can do whatever he wants, and he can certainly create a surge of technology where people can hear the gospel instantaneously, right? right? And our understanding of God's, you know, groups of people, maybe he defines them a little differently than, than we do, right? All we can do is read the word and to the best of our ability, apply it and live by the definitions and categories that are set forth in the word. And Jesus said the gospel must be proclaimed throughout the whole world to all the nations or ethnos, and then the end will come. And so just like the disciples, we're looking around and we're asking, is the time now? They were looking at what was happening around them and they thought, man, it must be near the time. But Jesus reminds them and us that we're not going to know the time that God has fixed on his own by his will and plan. And then he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Or in essence, before you worry about the end coming, worry about what I called you to do. Yes, look for my coming. Be expectant, but don't forget that there's a lot more for you to do. I've already commanded you to go to all the nations and preach the gospel. I've already commanded you to go make disciples of all the nations of every single people group. And in order for you to do that, I'm going to equip you with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to empower you through the Holy Spirit to go out and do just that. So, so that you will be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem where you are, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Your job is to get busy making disciples and sharing the gospel and being a witness of my goodness all over over the world. And after Jesus says these words, Jesus ascended to heaven. And in verse 9 it reads, and when, they had, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. That was the last thing Jesus said on earth. You are not going to know the end when it comes, but you are to be my witnesses right here, right now, to the very ends of the earth. Christians, what this tells us, if there's any reason for the church to exist, it is to move forward this mission of Jesus Christ. Yes, the church, inside the church, we're to bear one another's burdens. Yes, inside the church, we are to be here for each other and to love on each other and care for each other. And we're to draw closer together in fellowship. That's why we're going we're gonna to do things like we do today with tri-tip and, you know, and a silly little game. But all those ultimately serve the greater mission of the church. And the mission of the church is to create spiritually maturing Christ followers 
all over the world. All the things that we do, all the things that we are, all the things that we invest in are driven to that end. From the way that we worship, to the way that we teach, to the way that we administer church business, from the way that we do children's ministry, all of our efforts are founded on that singular mission of making disciples of the entire world. The spread of the gospel around the world, that's why we're here. That's why we were saved. All of us have been called to this mission to share the hope of Christ with our community and the world. And I want you to notice what Jesus is saying here. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. I think one of the problems that we face here is that many Christians and many churches tend to fall into a one-dimensional view of mission. We either are all in for local missions and local ministry, or we're all in for global missions, right? And global missionaries. In fact, a pastor friend of mine was talking about the fact that many churches and church leaders are so excited about missionaries to far-flung places around the world and exotic locations, and, and they raise a lot of support for that, but they ignore the needs of the gospel in their own community. They're not any missionaries at home. But look at what Jesus is actually saying. He says that we are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, which is their hometown and their immediate context, then Judea, which is more like the state or a small country, and then Samaria, which would be a neighboring country and state or, or state. And then he says, to the ends of the earth. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's painting a picture of an all-inclusive picture of our mission. The scope of our mission is literally everywhere. Your mission as a believer is to witness to Christ everywhere. And that naturally begins at home. You're to be a living witness, a living visible witness to Christ at home. You're to share the gospel with your family at home. You're to be a light for Christ for your spouse and your children and your siblings and your parents. In fact, your primary responsibility, the primary responsibility of discipleship of your family does not belong to the church. That might be news for some of you. The primary responsibility of discipleship does not belong to the church. It belongs to you. You are the ones that are responsible for discipling the members of your family, discipling your children, helping them to know and follow Christ. So your mission begins at home, and then we're to be witnesses spreading further out. We're to share the gospel at work and at school and during our social activities. We're to be witnesses of the gospel in our neighborhood, in our entire community. Everywhere your feet go in the community, you're to be a light that shines for Christ in your actions, in your attitudes, and in your words. And you're to be a witness wherever you travel, be it to Lancaster for groceries or Los Angeles for an appointment or to the Cayman Islands for vacation. Sometimes we're not such great witnesses when we're traveling, especially on the 14 when somebody cuts you off, but you're to bear witness to your entire state. As our state continues to push in on us, we're still to bear witness. I don't know if you had a chance to read uh, um, John MacArthur's letter to Gavin Newsom. I really felt that it was... Uh, it was heartfelt and he proclaimed the gospel to him, but he was standing against some of the things that the state's doing. You're responsible to bear witness 
to your entire state. You're responsible, each one of us, to help spread the gospel to the entire world. Now, the truth is most of us don't think in these terms. We don't think of ourselves as, as global missionaries. I mean, when's the last time you thought to yourself, I'm personally responsible for spreading the gospel and make disciples of my family and the world. I mean, we don't normally think this way. When you go to the gym to watch a volleyball game or a basketball game, do you think, think to yourself, I am personally responsible for spreading the hope of Christ everywhere I go, including to these people here. Wait a minute, let me just yell at the ref some more. When you, when you hear about the hurricane devastation in Florida, did you think, man, there are people down there that are suffering and there are people there that need to hear the truth about Christ? Or how about when the war in Ukraine began? Did you think to yourself, I'm somehow responsible for making sure that the gospel message of Christ gets there too? When you think about it, if, if you ever do think about it, do you ever see yourself right, as someone who has a personal interest in the global mission field? Do you ever see yourself as a, as a missionary to the world? The problem is we just don't think this way. We hear the Great Commission, and, 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 and we really and sincerely think, right, that's, that's not really about me. I mean, I'm just a mom trying to take care of kids. Right? I'm, just, I'm just a guy trying to make a living. Right? I'm just this, or I'm just that. When Jesus says, right, that you are to go into the world and make disciples of nations, we think that probably applies to those really hyper-spiritual people. Now, when Jesus says, hey, I'll be with you always to the end of the age, we go, well, wait a minute. Now, that applies to me. But we don't think of ourselves as being responsible to the world to share Christ. Well, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that that was his mission and ought to be ours. He says, I'm under obligation. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians. That basically right, is the entire world both to the wise and the foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God, for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it is the, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul understood he was obligated to everyone to spread the gospel, and he went all around the Mediterranean to make it a reality. But we don't think of ourselves that way because somewhere inside of us, we have not fully let go of the idea that our salvation, that, that God rescuing us somehow is all about us. I mean, I love Jesus and I'm saved and I go to church and I, I sing worship songs and I, I give a little money in the offering plate and I, I pray with my, my kids at mealtime and I get offended when the government does something that violates my, my religious freedom, but the rest of my life is about me. It's about my wants and desires and plans and comforts. I'm a Christian, but I'm not really all in in every part of my life. I'm not sold out to make disciples to the world. Yes, I might even share my faith with somebody once in a while, but I don't see myself as a global Christian or a global missionary. And I want you to understand, please hear me, this is not a criticism from me to you. This is a criticism of me. This is a criticism of who I am and who I can be. 
And so understand, I don't, I don't blame you. I blame how we have, have done church for the last century. Right? We build churches with niche focuses where we're just interested in getting attendance and entertaining people. And, and, and where all the attention is either on a local ministry or on a global ministry. And worse, we've painted this picture where the church institutionally is the hub and center of fulfilling the mission locally and globally, that the church, the nonprofit corporation, is the engine that drives missions which couldn't be further from the truth. It is the church for sure, but it's the church, the people of the church individually who are the center point of fulfilling the mission. It's not some abstract thing out there. It's all of us. Yes, we work together corporately to pull our resources, but we are all individually responsible for this mission. All of us. Brothers and sisters, we are all called by Christ to be global missionaries. That is why we were saved, to be global missionaries. You were called to be on mission to the entire world. Your mission field is the entire world. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, he's obviously got a fever, right? He's crazy. He's out of his mind. Because how am I going to be a missionary to the entire world? I mean, I got a job. I got four kids. I got a mortgage, student loans. I got a school site council meeting next week, right? I got to go meet with the principal to talk to my kid because I don't even know what he did. How do you, what do you mean missionary to the world? Boy, you, your, your butter done slipped off your biscuit. And believe me, I understand that reaction because we don't normally think like this. We think about our lives first and all that we have to do. And we think about the things that, we, that are going on around us and how am I going to pay this bill? And I hope I can make it to the pharmacy on time. I hope that my son's knee gets better so he can play next week, you know? I wonder if anybody liked my picture on Instagram. How come I'm not getting more likes on TikTok, you know? You see, we don't think like this because we have not fully oriented our hearts and minds around God and his program. You don't think of yourself as a global missionary because you don't think in global missionary terms. I mean, let me ask you a question. When you think about things that, that, that you're excited about, when you think about things that you are passionate about, when you pray, for things to be accomplished. Are you passionate and are you praying for all the world to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? I had somebody, a pastor actually asked that question. He said, if, you, if, if everything you prayed for yesterday came true, what would have came true? Would, would hunger be ended? Would, would people be reconciled to Christ? Would all the world, would Jesus be coming back, Right? The thing is, is we don't typically think in these terms. Do we wish to see the day when the church is sending missionaries to every last people group in the world and that the gospel is proclaimed worldwide? Do we actively long for the time when believers in Christ are in every tribe and tongue on the earth? Right. We, we typically don't. We're so busy in the mundane. Right. Somewhere in us, we still believe that our life and our salvation it's still about us and not God and his mission, plan, and purpose. Somewhere we believe God saved me so I can be happy instead of 
I am so happy because God saved me to be part of his mission here on earth. You see, what we need is not a change in our geographical location. Right? We're not called, all of us, to physically move to another state or another country or to begin preaching the gospel you know, in a church. We're not all called actively to travel around the globe planting churches everywhere. What we need is not a change in our location. What we need is really a change in our hearts. We need to understand that salvation or redemption and our redeemed lives are to be offered to God as living sacrifices to him. And every part of our life is to be enlisted in the service of God. Every part, right? Your life as a parent, your life as children of parents, your life as an employee, your life as a student, your life as a community member or a teammate, your life as a citizen, your life as a taxpayer, your life as a stranger to those around you, your love life, your home life, your work life, your thought life, your financial life, all of these parts of your life are to be enlisted in the service to God in order to achieve his global mission. You and I must embrace the fact that we belong to God and as such, we are called to participate in his redemptive mission on a global scale. We are called, we are all called to be global missionaries in our own right. Now you're going, okay, all right, fine. You've beat it into my head today. How does it work? How do I, how do, I do that? How do I live a life as a global missionary? Because because we're not all going to have the ability to travel the world and evangelizing and planting churches. So where does this begin? Well, it begins with us orienting our entire lives around God, making Christ the very center of every part of our lives, from home to work to hobbies to even doing the laundry. Every part of our life is to be lived for the glory of God. Every part of our life is to be lived mindful of God's purposes. As Paul says, so whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Your entire life, even the mundane things, even the routine things, even the annoying things are to be lived in a way that reflects and glorifies God. That's the beginning, that God must be the center point of our lives. And then practically speaking, there's several ways that you can live out this call as global missionaries. Practical ways that don't require for you to have advanced theological degrees. They don't require for you to suddenly drum up support to move to Zimbabwe. There are several practical ways to participate in God's global mission right where you are. And the first, and probably the most important, is prayer. We as Christians are called to be a praying people. That is what we are called to. We must be sold out for God's mission to the point that we continually are praying for its fulfillment. We should be coming, coming before the Lord saying, Lord, let the gospel reach the ends of the earth. We ought to be people who are in prayer every single day about this, who are praying for our individual ministries. We should be praying for all the missionaries that we support at this church. We should be praying that God's word would be proclaimed all the way around the world. We should be praying that God would be glorified by worldwide worship and the proclamation of his gospel. And we should be praying for God to reveal to us when and how we should be involved in this. You see, it's not incumbent. We don't all have to be 
people who are raising support to travel to a foreign country. There are ways that we can support that. And one of the most important ways is prayer. Second is to encourage. One of the things that's missing, I think, in the world around us is, is encouragement. It's really easy to be the instrument of criticism. Right? We need to be encouraging other people in their, in their ministries and other people in their missions. We should be the most encouraging people in the entire world. We should be encouraging your brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the work that they're doing. And we should be saying thank you to those who serve. We should be thank you to the teachers and the deacons and thank you to the volunteers to work to further the kingdom of God right here and right now. We should, be, we should say thank you and encourage other ministers. Perhaps there are people and pre- pre- preachers and pastors you listen to on TV or on YouTube. Have you ever thought about just sending them a little note saying, hey, I just want you to know, I just appreciate your ministry. Or even the pastors in our own community. There are several pastors who are doing a good job loving their church and loving the community and, and ministering in their own context. We should be encouraging them and loving on them. When's the last time that you've encouraged somebody in their ministry position, whether it's full-time or a volunteer position? And even more than that, we should be encouraging those in the local church to explore God's calling in their lives. We should be encouraging them to seek God's wisdom and direction and call for their own life. We should should help people to realize that some of them are called to go and plant other churches. Are there young people in and around us who are being called to pastoral ministry? Are there young people in our congregation who are called to go around the globe? It might seem strange for a little community like this, but churches this small can raise up huge armies of people to go out into the world. We should be encouraging one another and we should be encouraging the missionaries that we support. We have letters that we put up all the time of those missionaries and the work that they do. My encouragement to you is get to know them. Write them a letter and say thank you to them. If you'd like their Facebook contact information, I'd help you connect with them that way. Just drop them a little DM and say, hey, we love you at First Baptist Church and we're praying for you. So the first is prayer. The second is encouragement. The third is giving. This is a part, of, the part about global missions that gets overlooked all the time. Those of us, who, of us who have not been called to actually go can certainly make a point to give. In fact, one of the easiest ways to have a direct impact on global missions is giving because missionaries need financial support, both the missionaries that get sent out, but also the indigenous missionaries that we support as well. And we at First Baptist Church and made a point to support missionaries around the world by taking a percentage of everything we bring in here and give that away. So that way, just so you know, anytime you give something, you are supporting global missions. But with that being said, anybody who gives a little more that's labeled missionaries, we give that as well. So first is prayer, second is encouragement, third is to give, and fourth is to go. See, we're all called to make disciples where we are and where we're called to go. The question is, is where has God called you? Has he called you to the local mission field to make disciples of your coworkers? I think one of the greatest mission field is the workplace. Has he called you to make disciples of every person you meet in Lancaster? Has he called you to start a nonprofit organization 
you know, where you can actually minister to people's needs? Or has he called you to participate in church somewhere? Has he called you to move to another state? Has he called you to move to another country? Or has God called you to short-term missions trip somewhere else? We are all missionaries, global missionaries. And we all need to pray and encourage and give and go where God is calling us to go. And whether it's right here in Boron for the rest of your life, that might be, or to some far-flung place, or whether you're supposed to be that roadside missionary who stops by everybody who breaks down and loves on them that way. The question you need to ask yourself is, where's God called you to? Because we all know that we are all called. We're all called to be part of this mission. So I'll ask you one more time as we wrap up this series. Are you all in or are you not? You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.